Hello everyone and a very warm welcome back to No Talking At All. Today I have yet another friend on the show and this is a bit of a lengthy episode so I'll keep the introduction short. How about we get to the theme music and then we'll get started. Okay, so welcome back everyone to another episode of No Talking At All. I'm here with my friend Bryce. Bryce, a very warm welcome to the show. How are you today? Well, hello everyone. It's good to see you again, Apeksha. Long time no see, but I'm glad that we're doing this today. Yeah, absolutely. And before we dig into, you know, Bryce and who he is and why he's here, I wanted to give everyone a little introduction to how I know him because it's a very weird Uh, I guess, like, relationship we've had over the past few years. Yes, I think the first time we met, we were in KL, um, and I was chairing a committee that you were in. I think... For MUN. Yes, yes, this was for IASIS. Um, I was coming from Delhi, you were coming from Hong Kong. Um, And I think I I just kind of, like, randomly was chatting with some people in the committee, um, and then, like, you know, you kind of just add people on Facebook, and you're like, okay, maybe I'll talk to this person again, maybe I won't. Um, and then every now and then there'll be a person who you just keep talking to. I think you were like one of two people from that conference who I kept talking to, um, even after you were in Hong Kong. And then I remember when we went to college, we were pen pals for a little while. So we kind of spanned like, I mean, if you count India and Hong Kong and Kuala Lumpur and America, we've like spanned four different countries just there. Um, and then I went off to Thailand in between, and then you also did something Peace Corps related, which we'll talk about. Um, in a second but we have a real like kind of (laughs) all over the place sort of connection and we've only really met each other in person I think like that first time that we interacted which is really really interesting Um, so listeners I'm sure just by the way I'm talking you can kind of understand why I wanted to bring Bryce onto this show the whole point is to talk about this kind of third culture kid sort of situation navigating a lot of different cultural identities and trying to figure out like what that means to us as individuals and how that impacts our lives. Um, so I'm going to let Bryce sort of introduce himself just so you can understand where he's coming from. And then we'll dig a little bit more into how his life has played out. So Bryce, where were you born and where on earth are you right now? Oh, goodness. Um, well, getting between the two is going to be quite the story. Um, so I'll try and keep it brief. Um, but I was born in the UK, uh, in Bristol. Um, where, you know, I don't even remember living there because I was whisked away at the ripe age of two with my parents to uh, move to Japan. Uh, Yokohama, it's a smaller city right outside of Tokyo with a very awesome baseball team, the Yokohama Bay Stars. If you ever get the chance to go to a Japanese baseball game, I would highly recommend it. From Yokohama, at the age of four, I moved to Connecticut in the United States, where I lived with my dad for uh, until I was about 13. Um, And then from 13, I moved to Hong Kong to live with my mom. Um, And I stayed there until just before college at 17. Then I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz. And then right after college, I joined the Peace Corps, served two and a half years in Namibia, Um, came back here. And within a month, moved to North Carolina, where I now work for the EPA and do uh, grad school on the side to make my Indian mother proud. (laughs) What are you studying in grad school right now? Uh, I'm at American University studying international relations at their School of International Service. Well, that's phenomenal. It sounds like if anyone was to be studying international (laughs) relations, it would be someone. I was just counting. You've been in five different countries or at least lived in five different countries. Set aside like all the places you probably visited throughout your lifetime. Um, So just from living all over the world, how do you think that's impacted the way you approach your life in general? Like, how has that modified or uh, crafted your worldview? I think um, I would view the things that I learned in each country like a tool in a Swiss army knife. Like any tool, you deploy them at different times. And that kind of helps me approach different situations today. So, you know, for example... If I am trying to relate to someone in a higher context culture is what it's called academically. And for those who may not have that academic background, a high context culture is a culture where um, time is often perceived as more of a construct and not as urgent in a way to dictate life. It's a culture where 
me understanding your family and where you're from and the context of what you're doing is important for me to make decisions. When I'm in those kinds of cultural environments, um, whether it's working with someone in an office who's from one of those cultures or whether it's me living in a country where that is the dominant culture, you know, I would certainly draw on my experience living in Namibia um, to a lesser degree living in Hong Kong um, and make sure that I can almost code switch in a way to be able to not come across as abrasive in those types of culture. Conversely, you know, Hong Kong being a mixed city often has an aspect of high context culture or sorry, low context culture, which is quite the opposite of a high context culture. That's where time often dictates the actions that you do. Punctuality is valued. Direct communication is valued. Um, power structures are less so. Everyone's treated a little bit more equally. You don't need to necessarily respect your boss to the same degree as in a high context culture. And that often helps me in places like the US, the UK, um, working with Westerners who very much value those types of things. And then being able to switch between the two in environments like the Peace Corps, where you have the American staff who are coming from one culture, and you have the Namibian staff who are coming from a host of different cultures, depending on their tribe, and making sure that I can approach both parties, try and find a way forward, and make sure that we're all working seamlessly together and getting along. So it sounds like, I mean, you've picked up a lot of pieces along the way. Do you kind of view yourself as kind of like a mosaic of these experiences, or do you feel yourself feeling more comfortable in one situation versus the other? Well, I think that's an interesting question. I think that rather than a mosaic, I'd like to say I'm a salad bowl. Uh, and the reason why is a mosaic, you know, there might be different patterns on the surface, but typically I think of a mosaic as similar sized stones going together to form a piece of art, right? Whereas a salad bowl, you have your tomatoes, you have your lettuce that could be shredded. They're all different shapes, sizes, and colors, yet they all sort of go together, but they're not blending together, right? So I'm the, the intercultural salad bowl, if you will. Uh, you know, whether or not I'm more comfortable in one, I would say that I am equally comfortable in both situations. At the end of the day, I'm half white American and half Indian. Both of those are different cultures. I've spent an equal amount of time living with either parent in both cultures uh, or in places where both cultures existed. Um, so I'm able to switch between the two. I would say it's it's akin to being fluently bilingual or trilingual, where you know you might not necessarily be more comfortable in one language or the other. Uh, you'll find yourself using one or the other more depending on where you're living, but you can switch between the two seamlessly. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, by the way, remember a lot from the places you lived before? you were like 13 years old? Because I personally, I lived, in t I lived in the US until I was 10 years old. And I think most of my memories are of like Costco and my school and maybe like Chuck E. Cheese, like the tulip garden and berry picking. Like that's like <laughs> cumulatively all my experiences. So I'm curious, I mean, you shifted around a lot during those very young years. So how much do you even recollect and, you know, do you ever reflect on those experiences and maybe do you ever want to recreate them since you had a, didn't have that much of a chance to do so when you were younger? Yeah, um, so I don't remember much of living in the UK apart from probably the interior of a house, which is, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where that would be. Yeah. Um, I do remember living in Japan. I remember that outside of a convenience store, I believe it was Lawson's for those of you who live in Japan, very great convenience store, um, but they have an orange elephant outside. Uh, my favorite color is orange and my favorite animal is an elephant. So you can imagine that I was pretty excited by this, yeah. what I thought was a life-size statue because I was three years old and it was as tall <laughs> as I was. <laughs> so I remember things like that. I remember um, Japan has a huge train culture and with trains comes like plastic models of trains and toy trains and things like that. Um, so I remember going to the Japanese train store, getting the subway line of the train that I used to take, but that in a set, I actually still have it. 
you know, I also remember eating certain foods, uh, walking around Yokohama, walk although I would say, like, I don't remember speaking any Japanese. Apparently, I, I did for a little bit. Most of my memories of Japan come from visiting it from living in Hong Kong, right? Mm, and okay. taking the two-hour flight, popping over and re-seeing these places. What about the U.S.? I mean, I feel like, like you said, you, you've been on and off in the United States. Like, what does your relationship with the United States feel like? So I do remember the U.S. a lot because it's elementary and middle school for me. Um, I would say most of my memories are still from Hong Kong. As I get older, I tend to forget a lot of the early days in the U.S. The U.S. to me is a, it's an interesting place where I wouldn't call it home. I call Hong Kong home. I do find it very familiar and there's a lot of comforts living here. I'm able to see a lot of family on both sides. Um, I'm able to, you know, remember random things. Like I was in Boston for uh, autumn wedding and I just remember the smell of the air. And I was like, oh, this smells like when I was little in Connecticut. Just random things like that that are comforting. And I have similar feelings in Japan and the UK or in Hong Kong of like just, you know, random comforting smells of when it was your home or, you know, things that you see that make you feel comfortable. So that's the U.S. for me, but it is not a place where I would want to live long term. I think that uh, I'm very fortunate to have gotten a lot of cultural exposure. I'm very fortunate to be able to speak multiple languages. And I think that using that by working abroad, hopefully in the foreign service or some other capacity to wage peace, as we like to call it, at American <laughs> University. You know, I think that's where I would be most beneficial to the world. Yeah, absolutely. I really like how you said that because I actually feel very similarly about the U.S. Like that's where I was born. That's where I, you know, was educated in my early years. That's where I went to college. And I almost think of it as like not a home, but a home base. Like it's like a default option for me. And I feel like I could go there and I could I could chill out. I could hide out while I'm trying to figure out what I want to do next. I think I might end up going to grad school there. Um, but I do also see my future somewhere else just because I have had the opportunity to look outward. And I do know that's something that a lot of people want to do. And it almost feels like a responsibility. It also feels like honoring like that part of you that had a chance to be somewhere else. So I definitely resonate with that. Um, I'm curious, uh, since you said you remember Hong Kong better than other places you've lived, can you tell us about some really formative things that you experienced growing up in Hong Kong? Yeah, um, Hong Kong to me feels like freedom in a way, because when you're in your early teens, you know, that's when you're really exploring the world um, and really cementing your personality. Coming from a smaller town in Connecticut, Hong Kong has everything you could want and more. It's a 20, it's a true 24 hour city. If you've ever been to Boston, it closes down at eight o'clock. <laughs> Everything's done. There might be nightlife that goes till 10 o'clock. Hong Kong, 24 hour city. There's a place that closes down at midnight. Another one opens up at midnight that does the same exact thing. Not that I was out that late. My mother had me come home at 10 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But the, the nature of the city and the energy is very different. And the reason why I say it's like freedom is because it's, it's unique in the sense that it is so safe that if the kid's home by 10 o'clock, it's pretty safe to allow your kid to just go around and explore Hong Kong. No one's, the crime rate's incredibly low, public transportation's incredibly affordable, and you can get around the city and explore everything from former British colonial building projects to modern Hong Kong Chinese capitalist structures to um, all sorts of the various diaspora communities from South Asia, Southern Africa, Central Africa, Southeast Asia, and mainland China. And all of the culinary traditions and cultural traditions that come with that. You know, that's why I say it's like freedom. It's really a place where you can grow and almost do what any 13 to 18 year old would want to do um, within reason, right? Yeah, absolutely. Did anyone else in your family, um, either your parents or a relative, like experience a childhood like that? Or was that something that started with you? Um, no, you could say that my 
mom did. My grandparents immigrated to the U.S. in the 70s. However, before entering the U.S., they actually taught in Ethiopia, um, like many Indian teachers from West Bengal did. Um, and they lived in a small place called Irgalem, which is on or near Lake Awasa um, in e central Ethiopia. And we actually went back uh, when I was done with Peace Corps with them after 50 years. They lived in the time of Haile Selassie's rule, just before the country deposed Haile Selassie and the Derg, which is a Maoist communist authoritarian regime, took over the country um, until the 1990s when the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, who you may have heard of for more recent news, um, actually ousted the Maoist communist government. So they they left Ethiopia right as the conflict was brewing. Um, so they had revolutionaries come into their school and smash pictures of King Haile Selassie. Um, and that's when they were keen on immigrating to the United States. My uh, grandfather came first, and then my grandmother and mother and her siblings came after to Virginia, a very small town in Virginia, um, and that's where she grew up. Um, so she remembers living in Ethiopia to a degree like I do with living in Japan, so certain snapshots. Her older siblings uh, very much remember living in Ethiopia and India mm -hmm. and then immigrating to the U.S. I think that their experience would be different than mine temporally. Um, the things that they were exposed to when they were abroad were certainly different. I think it's also different culturally in the sense that while they are also kind of third culture kids in that sense, they're not mixed third culture kids. And being biracial often has a, a different cultural layer than being of one race and growing up in the United States. Yeah, that's super interesting. I was going to say um, it's really cool that you got to go back to Africa after having kind of like a family history that's interacting with that. What motivated you to do Peace Corps. And I am a little curious about the logistics of Peace Corps because I did Fulbright, which is kind of the same, but not the same at all, where we pick a specific country and a specific program and then apply to that. But I know it's a little bit more random with Peace Corps. So um, I would love to hear a little bit about that and how it felt being able to go to Africa and kind of forming your own relationship with a place in the continent. Yeah. Um, so the Peace Corps selection process has changed since I've gone through it. So I can only really speak to what I went through. I think right now, it's very similar to what you described Fulbright is, where you apply to the particular program. When I was doing Peace Corps, you had two options. You could say, look at my resume. If I'm qualified, send me anywhere doing anything. Or you could say, you could list your top three countries and choose a general program concentration. The two main concentrations, or I guess there's three for Peace Corps. There's agriculture, science teaching, and English teaching. I'm sure there's some others, but those would be very particular to those countries. These three are the general ones that I'm aware of that Peace Corps does. So I chose three different countries. I researched on their programs. You can look at various blog posts. Um, sometimes you can even find the all-volunteer survey to see volunteer satisfaction. Uh, posts are run wildly differently compared to others. Sometimes it depends on the country director. It depends on that post's history and what the scope of that post is. All of mine were English education because I don't have a science degree unless political science counts. <laughs> so I chose Namibia, I chose Cambodia, and I chose, I believe, Tonga. All wildly different. Cambodia I had been to before from Hong Kong. I had done service there for about a month and a half. Um, we had a very interesting class in high school where we would go to a uh, child rescue center that the school had a long-term relationship with for the last 10 years. Uh, there are multiple classes throughout the year that would go to this center, and we st the school still has a relationship with the center. But we would go and we'd learn about sustainable development um, because we could see what the previous class had done. We could see what the school is doing in general. We would go ourselves and we'd try and identify a need, and then we'd come back um, about, you know, a month or two later and stay for a little bit longer and try and implement the project that we had developed. And we'd work with the center administrator and, and things of that nature. 
So that's why I had Cambodia in my head as a potential Peace Corps option. I already had contacts in the country that I could work with. Um, and Tonga thought it would be very interesting to live. I had not been to that part of the world. Um, same thing with Namibia. Both have very interesting histories and relationships with the United States. So I felt that both would be places where I could see myself fully completing service successfully, as well as both our countries, all three really, are countries where violence is low, crime is relatively lower to, compared to their neighbors. Um, and safety and security at the end of the day, if you're putting yourself in a rural, potentially vulnerable environment is the most important thing. And I got Namibia, which, you know, not a lot of people know about, but is actually a very exciting place to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think the safety thing is just kind of ringing a bell with me. Um, like when I was placed in Thailand, obviously we picked the country we went to, but we didn't get to pick where in Thailand we went. Um, and all I had ever been to was Bangkok and <laughs> and slightly like, you know, coastal areas around Bangkok. Um, uh, so I really hadn't seen much of Thailand at all, even though we've been like five or six times. And I mean, similar to you, like since we were so close by, it's like a three and a half hour flight from India. It's like, you know, going to the other side of the United States. So it's like really, really accessible. Um, but when we went, I got placed in a southern province called Nakhonsi Tamarat. Um, and I remember one thing they told us was like, don't be alarmed, you will be okay. And I didn't understand what they were talking about. I was like, would there be a chance that I wouldn't be okay? Then we learned that in the extreme south of Thailand, on the Malaysia border, there's a region called Patani, um, and there's a lot of just like unrest there for a variety of reasons that I don't want to get into. Um, but that was kind of interesting to learn about, and they're like, yeah, just don't go south of this area, you'll be fine, don't take a bus to Malaysia. And I'm like, I didn't even have these questions, and now I'm, you know, thinking of more ways that I could, you know, get in trouble. Um, but yeah, like that's super, super important, I think. I think it's important to pick a country also that you feel like you could exercise caution in and you have a little bit of political context about. Um, so like you said, not a lot of people know a lot about Namibia. I personally do not. Um, so if you had to give like a, a an elevator pitch for the country and maybe like a little bit of an insight into your experience there, what do you think people should know about this part of the world? Yeah, um, I'll speak to Namibia specifically before static in general which is Southern African Development Community, which is like the regional block under the AU for that area. But Namibia itself is twice the size of California, so it's huge. It only has two million people, um, so the population is incredibly tiny. And, you know, you're currently living in India, Bangalore. Bangalore in the south. Very, very population dense, yeah. Yes, and that... Uh, you know, coming from Hong Kong, very population dense. I've lived in Shanghai briefly for like various summer internships. That's 22 million people. So I've been in cities, the land area of Binduk, which is the capital city of Namibia, with 10 times the population of the entire country. That's, again, towards the side of California. Wow, yeah. So it's very interesting when you arrive because it's, it's the second least densely populated country other than Mongolia. Um, so when you're in the capital city, which has, I think, about 300,000 people maximum, uh, they can't really count because there's so many informal settlements. But when you arrive in the capital, you think, okay, this is like a relatively small to mid-sized city. Um, and then as soon as you drive out, it's like savannah, semi-desert. As you head north, then it eventually gets more green. Um, as you go south, it turns into more desert, very arid. They actually filmed scenes from, I think, Mad Max Fury Road there. If you've seen that movie, Sand Dunes and stuff, that's Namibia in the south. So the natural beauty is exquisite. The people are some of the nicest people I've met. Namibia is a high-context culture. Most of the tribes are high-context culture. And... There are dozens of tribes in Namibia, each with their unique culture, distinct language, distinct history, most importantly. I was posted in the central part of Namibia, uh, in the region of Oshodonjupa, in a tiny village called Okaepe. Oshodonjupa is primarily the ancestral lands of the San people, and this is slightly controversial to say. Most of Namibia is in about the 1600s. The Bantu migration reached Southern Africa, and that's where the Hereros, 
Bombo tribes and the various other Bantu tribes came in. Um, and there's a distinct difference in Namibia between someone who's of Bantu origin and someone who's of San origin in appearance. So it's, it's quite easy to tell. If you've ever seen the movie... I think it's called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. So the, the people featured in that movie are the San people. Okay. Um, they're, you know, incorrectly referred to as Bushmen sometimes. Bantu people look more uh, West African in features. They have darker skin, larger stature. So it's very clear who is who most of the time. And I bring this up because Namibia is a beautiful country it does have a lot of history, and a lot of that history surrounds land rights. The San people were pushed off most of their land by various Bantu tribes. And then in the 1800s, uh, 200 years after the Bantu people arrived in Namibia, the Germans came and did the same thing to the Bantu tribes. So you almost have this weird dynamic going on in Namibia where to this day, there are German Namibians there who are owning and occupying the land. It is often the best land for farmland, and they push the Bantu into the periphery of these lands. And the Bantu have subsequently pushed the San, who are traditionally hunter-gatherers, into the least productive land in the country. So if you were to go to Namibia, and a lot of people go for the natural beauty, a lot of people go for the cultural experience. But if you have a keen eye, you will notice German or Afrikaner owned businesses or farms at the interior where the land's productive. And as you span out, you will see a lot of the various Bantu tribes. And then if you go even further, you will see the sun. And I feel that's an important thing. I know that this is a longer answer on what makes Namibia Namibia, but I feel like it's important cultural We'll be right back after a short break. The fact that the placement of people is just kind of reflective of the history. I mean, it must be impossible to navigate a country like that and not kind of notice differences probably as you like maybe get around or away from the capital, correct? It probably differs a lot. Yeah, it's like the capital. And then if you, there's a road that goes north, everything along that road, usually, which the Germans built during their colonial occupation, uh, specifically to claim that land. I do have to say, though, because the languages are so different, it's very interesting. So in training for Peace Corps, they separated you immediately into the language groups of the tribe that you're going to live with. And some of the languages are relatively intelligible. Like I could go to the north and my Oshiedero was good enough to understand a lot of Oshiwambo and like order some meat and beer or whatever, right? Because those words were very similar. Others, I had no idea what they were saying. Some languages have like clicks in it. Some don't. Mine didn't. You know, some are completely different root languages. So Oshiedero and Oshiwambo are from the Congo region. They have a lot of similarities to languages in Angola and the Congo, whereas some other languages are more from the East African region. So they derive from Swahili. Hakuna Matata was one of the phrases in the local languages, Rukongali, in the north of Namibia. Um, So you have this very interesting dynamic where Namibia really makes up the fabric of a lot of Africa at large, where you have language groups that are represented broadly throughout Southern Africa that also appear in Namibia, including Afrikaans from the Dutch uh, colonization and English from the later English colonization. That's all in Namibia. So you have only 2 million people, yet so much diversity. Yeah, that's a lot going on in like, I mean, a lot of space, but not a huge population pool. I'm so curious, Bryce, because like programs like Fulbright and Peace Corps, I mean, part of it is to put people out into the world so that you can sort of interact. And, you know, there's this whole concept of soft diplomacy that takes place. And obviously it really helps expose you to other parts of the world. But I know when I was um, abroad, there were so many interesting questions that were asked of me because I kind of served as this lens into like, you know, what's going on elsewhere. Um, This is like my 
accessible person who's not a tourist who I get access to. So what kinds of questions did your students and maybe your like co-teachers or host teachers or anyone in your community ask you that you thought were particularly interesting? I think I got a lot. I got accused of being a CIA spy so many times. I don't know if you got the same thing in Southern Thailand. No. <laughs> so got went viral, which led to a lot of interesting comments and questions and social connections um, from speaking the local language at a wedding. Someone recorded me and, you know, I think it got 70,000 views, which is, you know, pretty impressive for Namibia. Also, the whole tribe is probably about 160 to 200,000. Yeah, wow. That's a lot of the tribe that now knows me. <laughs> so I, I got a lot of interesting questions. I think uh, I constantly had to explain why an American can be from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. You know, that, that was certainly one of them. They eventually got around to it. I also had to explain a lot about the Trump administration's actions and some of the words Donald Trump said, such as calling African countries. I mean, he called African countries a hole um, and referred to Namibia, which he said Nambia and its healthcare system um, as like leeching U.S. funds or something like that. So I think a lot of the questions that I got pertaining to the United States were reactions to what the current administration at the time was doing. Um, it was reactions to general U.S. policy in Namibia. The United States actually did not support the Namibian War for Independence. Uh, in the 1990s, we were very much arming South Africa until the very end stages when the writing was on the wall and then pushed for a diplomatic solution to get Namibia its independence. So there's that historical legacy that a lot of people wanted to ask questions about. I think it helped train me to represent the United States from a neutral perspective. I certainly wouldn't lie to my friends there and say like, oh yeah, everything's all hunky-dory like, and fine. Um, but I would explain the rationale of why American democracy produced candidates like Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016 and how our electoral college system works so that someone who does not get a popular vote, can still get an overall vote and things like that. And they got a much better understanding of how America produces these political outcomes uh, or why America intervenes in certain countries and things like that. And I think that's because a lot of my colleagues were actually quite well educated as teachers. Um, so they were asking a lot of very specific political questions. Whereas when I spoke generally with villagers, they didn't necessarily have those types of questions. They were more asking about, you know, what is the rain like in America? What is Hong Kong's food like? Things like that, more the intercultural questions. And those were always a pleasure to answer and show them pictures of. And uh, for my learners um, is what we refer to students in Namibia as. Uh, I would sometimes cook various curries or uh, I'd made them like mac and cheese one time or I'd try and broaden their palates um, as a reward for if they got an A in the class. Um, so there's always these like literal cultural moments. Like wow, that's so special. They're probably like, like if they ever eat mac and cheese again in their life, they're going to just think of you. Like that's like a permanently imprinted experience that you've created for them. And that's so funny. Um, even for us, we had like a Christmas party at school and it was funny because I am not Christian but I was the Christmas authority as the American on, on campus um, and they're like what do what do Americans eat and I'm like I really don't think I think Thai food is so tasty I think these kids are gonna find American food really horrible and bland um, but then uh, one of my co-teachers he's like why don't we just make like a giant vat of mac and cheese and we did and the kids were like this is this does not taste like anything I'm like these kids are eating spicier food <laughs> They're like, this is horrible. This is what you enjoy. And I'm like, this is like what I wanted every day when I was like seven years old. I don't know how you're not enjoying this. But they're like, you know, I'm just going to stick to like, you know, my genkyo wan and my fish. And, you know, you can eat your, your weird like sloppy noodles yep. <laughs> thing. Yeah, that's exactly how my kids reacted to you. And I think it's very funny because we do hold that in such high esteem or certain culinary traditions in high esteem. But then... You know, you, you try and introduce it to some other cultures and they're like, you just melted cheese on overcooked noodles <laughs> <laughs> and you call that culinary tradition. 
It's two ingredients. Maybe three if you want to, like, push it. Or if you make the roux. <laughs> I know, I know. If you want to get creative, you know, it's just adding things onto, like, fingers that you can still, you know. Um, yeah, I always thought things like that were very humbling because one thing I personally felt really weird about, um, I think after I got accepted to Fulbright was this whole concept of like, okay, I am being an American cultural ambassador. It is my job to bring American culture to Thailand through this like, you know, lens of English. And I always felt really weird about that because I think it was kind of born from a imperialist kind of mindset where like, we need everyone to like America so that America can like prosper which is great. I mean, who doesn't want to be friends with other countries? But I think I kind of reconciled that with like, I'm also learning what people think of America. I'm also understanding, um, you know, what are the values of teaching a language like English beyond understanding American culture? Because um, that just like, for example, a student of yours, a learner of yours in Namibia would be able to talk to a student of mine in Thailand if they both have learned English, which is just like a really cool, I think that's like a more productive way for me to think about it. Um, especially because I, I still struggle with those two sides of my identity, like what is influencing me in what ways, what is impacting my worldview. Um, so I really try to think about the connections it makes versus like the cultures that one is trying to advance or teach the other. Um, cause I, I think in the end it just becomes, we're all just kind of a big mishmash of things that we've experienced, whether it's people or cultures. Um, so it's really cool to see people going like, that's kind of weird that you do that when a lot of the world is like, oh, like this is American and this is default. It's, it's right. cool to see it challenge. Yes, Absolutely. that's very true. I will say on talking about, you know, whether teaching English is inherently, you know, could be viewed as imperialistic. I didn't have to grapple with that as much in Namibia because Namibians since independence chose to make English the official language. Uh, for government and for official communications, specifically British English. So even as an American volunteer, I had to teach British English in this Namibian school, which was fine because I, you know, lived in Hong Kong and I'm half Indian, like, you know, what I, I use British English normally. Uh, so that wasn't an issue. But I think, you know, I didn't have that same grappling as you may have had in Thailand because locals, the government of Namibia is telling me to go to this village and teach English. Yeah. But then also locals are saying, hey, we really need to improve our English because when we go to the grocery store, everything's in English. It's not in Oshiretto. When we go to the capital city and need to see a doctor, they might not be Hereto. So I need to speak English to communicate with them. Yeah, yeah. That's super different from, I think Thailand is a country where, I mean, they were never colonized. So they're like very chill with Thai. They're operating just right. fine without English. Right. I think English is more of like a, a mobility language. So if you wanted to go to Bangkok and or Chiang Mai or one of these more touristy cities or more international cities, um, right. then it's important. But my students living in like a small town in the south of Thailand who, you know, really don't <laughs> need English at all of their life, they're functioning just fine. They're right. like, teacher, this is so unimportant. I don't know why you want me to like be able to say this sentence so correctly. So the motivations were very, very different, which made it tough for me. But that's yeah. really cool that, you know, you were helping them gain more access to their to their country, essentially, and I guess establish a connection. Um, I did want to ask you this, because I, I read sure. about this during, I didn't read about this, there was like a Fulbright conference we went to, and there was one Fulbright researcher who was uh, looking at the erasure of languages through like the promotion of these more unifying languages. So, like, for example, having English declared a national language in a country with so many different languages. Um, I'm curious if you ever, you know, had any conversations about that with people in Namibia or yeah. any encounters with that. So it was declared an official language upon independence in 1990. So that's very, the decision and the reasons why are very much in living memory for a lot of adults, right? Mm -hmm. um, even if someone was my age in Namibia, you know, they, they grew up in an independent Namibia, but they almost see the immediate consequences of changing the official language. Previously, it was Afrikaans as the lingua franca uh, because South Africa had colonized Namibia after the Germans were defeated in World War I. And then before that, it was German. I think that the reason why they chose it would be different than in a lot of countries for implementing English as a first language or as a, one of the official language. So for instance, in Hong Kong, English is an official language because of British colonialism. In Namibia, English is an official language because they wanted a language that everyone would have to learn. 
and that would put no group above the other. Yeah. Uh, Namibia is a Commonwealth country due to it formerly being colonized by South Africa, which at the time was actually dominion of the United Kingdom. It's an interesting relationship where because they're a Commonwealth country, they have access to a lot of English language resources that, of course, the British and the rest of the English-speaking world are happy to provide. Everyone has to learn it, so it puts them on an equal footing. Of course, at the time, mainly highly educated people would know English. People who had traveled abroad would know English, um, but most people knew Afrikaans. When you go to Namibia now, all of their subjects, except for their mother tongue language, which they learn in school, um, are taught in English. The proficiency of English for the younger generation, especially in cities, is quite high. In the rural areas, it's less high, and that's where you get a lot more pushback. Because someone staying in Okaipe, um, who mainly only goes to other Herero towns in the region, Okakarara, Oshodondu, all sorts of other towns, they're not going to need to speak English because there is no, or there are very few supermarkets. And even those supermarkets, even though the signs are in English, all the attendants and staff people are Herero. Um, so you'd be able to speak your mother tongue. And that's where you get a lot more pushback. And sometimes the kids are verbally taught in their mother tongue, even though the textbook language is in English. Interesting. A lot of the discussions around that that I've had view English as generally positive and not imperialistic. And that's, you know, more their words because it has that post-independence context. To them, it's like, okay, we're speaking English, it's all equal. If, you, if we had to speak Afrikaans, then that's a colonial legacy. Right. We had to speak German, that's a colonial legacy and also much more difficult than Afrikaans or English to learn. I think that's why it makes Namibia so interesting. I don't know of any other case study that just unilaterally without direct British or American influence said, yep, we're going to make English our official language now. Yeah, that's super interesting. So... I do want to round us off with, again, a little bit of connection back to your history. So you alluded to the fact that you speak many languages. Um, And I'm curious, because I've had friends talk to me about this. Do you feel like uh, you use certain languages or you're able to use certain languages to, I guess, honor different parts of your personality and things you want to express? Like, I personally, when I'm thinking about food, Hindi is the first thing that comes to my head. I, like, don't know how to say half of the spices in my kitchen in English, um, but right. like if I was in an academic setting, English is definitely what I would default to and so on and so forth. So I'm curious how that feels for you and what languages do you speak? Um, so I speak English, uh, Mandarin, Chinese, as well as Oshiretto, all very different linguistic roots. And I think because of that, which I'm sure you also get from Hindi, there's just certain phrases that you can't replace in English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm sorry, you can try, but it's not going to do the trick. So one of them for Oshirero is um, ovi puro puro, which just means like total nonsense. <laughs> that, that's just rubbish. That's nonsense all in one. So you'd say like, oh, those are puro puro things. <laughs> if you were speaking, you know, in Oshirero with the other words translated into English. Yeah, yeah. So like that's something that I use to express myself. There are certain sounds that aren't even the language that sometimes I feel more comfortable expressing. So, um, you know, in English, you might be like, okay, okay, as you're listening to someone else converse. In Chinese, it's like, oh, 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 oh. And, you know, that's something that feels more comfortable to me. In terms of whether or not I, like, think in the languages or anything like that, I would say that my experience with the languages is very different. So because I only learned Mandarin from 13 onwards and Oshiretto from 20 onwards. I I can dream in Mandarin, sometimes I do, if I'm in a Chinese-speaking environment and I can think directly in Mandarin because I was young enough to be able to internalize it that way. Oshiretto, I can't really do that. So it's very different than if I was growing up bilingual from the get-go. I I don't actually speak much Bengali. I know enough to probably not die, (laughs) like ask for help. But, you know, as far as most of my communications with family members in West Bengal, um, it it would be in English or through one of my grandparents or mother acting as a translator or them knowing English sometimes. So I think that's a very interesting question. I would say I'm most comfortable with Chinese. When I'm in the appropriate setting, I will use it to the fullest extent. Oshirero, I am comfortable with. I would use it if I'm there, but I do not 
think in it and apart from a few terms i don't really use it over other languages i will say though and i'm not sure if you've been in a situation like this but when let's say someone is speaking thai and you understand some basic thai from living there and there's a person speaking hindi next to that thai person perhaps on a tour somewhere in thailand or elsewhere and then someone else is speaking english behind you doesn't your brain just hurt a little bit and then yeah, when you want to like make a... friends Yeah. That that actually happened. We went to so my family came to visit me a couple times while we were in Thailand and we went to Krabi, um yeah. which is a very common holiday destination for a lot of Indians. And I think Bangkok is like that as well, but <laughs> yes. when we went to Krabi, I'm not even joking. It's like there's this place called Aonang, which is the main beach area, and it's just like a hill full of hotels and restaurants. There are I'm not joking, like probably 10 Indian restaurants on this stretch that has max like 50 different places you could go. So We're eating like alu paratha in Krabi, which is like <laughs> very very random. Good too. <laughs> yeah, but but quite literally, like we're and I mean the the waiters there they um, are usually come from Burma or Myanmar, um, and they speak Hindi, Thai, and English. Like they can speak, and sometimes oh, they speak yeah. Russian. It just depends on like the tourist traffic, and it was right. just the weirdest. Like like you said, I was short circuiting trying to focus on something. <laughs> Um, and at home, I'm really fortunate. My dad grew up in Bangkok, so he and I will sometimes say little things in Thai to each other really cutely. Um, but that's, I mean, we're not having a conversation at all, so I don't think that even counts as a situation. <laughs> but just walking around Thailand, there's just so many Indians, so you will hear Hindi and English anyway. And I speak a blend of Hindi and English with my parents, right. but the Thai definitely, I agree. And then when I was in Chiang Mai, we met a, a someone from Spain. Sitting outside of Seven Eleven, and he's like, "Do you speak Spanish?" And I was just like, "Oh yeah, I speak a little." And then yeah. he said something to me in Spanish, and I knew, I knew I had to say yes. Um, you said it in Thai, didn't you? I said it in Thai. I turned to him <laughs> and I said, "Thai ka," and he's like, "What on earth are you saying?" I'm like, "I oh, I know what you said. I just, I could not remember what language I had to respond to you." In. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I say like these intercultural tools or the tools of being multicultural or biracial or whatever it is are like tools in a Swiss Army knife. Like I was, uh, I think the most quintessential moment of this was when I was on safari with my mom in Namibia. The driver turns out was one of my students' uncles, so I was speaking with him in Oshiereta. That's how we got to go see the white rhinos because he called up the anti-poaching unit and was like, "Hey." My um, nephew's teacher is here. He wants to see white rhinos. Where are the white rhinos? VIP access. Love I know. So I was, I was speaking with him in Oshiereto. There's a lot of mainland Chinese tourists in Namibia, um, four of whom were on our our you know jeep or whatever. So I was speaking with them because they were confused as to what was going on. So I was like, <laughs> "Hi." <They're> like what? <laughs> Like yeah, I, I I live in Namibia. I used to live in Hong Kong. I speak Mandarin, um, and you know I've just asked him where the white rhinos are. Um, so he's going to take us there shortly. You need to be really quiet, and you cannot be shouting really loudly around the white rhinos because they do charge. And then my mom is like looking at me, really confused because she doesn't speak either Mandarin or Oshiereto. <laughs> she's like, what? What? <laughs> So then I have to translate that thought into English, and it was—it's just uh, that's an instance where you know I had to speak in a way that was appropriate in Hereto culture and address the matter, and then reel it back, and then speak to four women in Chinese in a way that is culturally appropriate, mm -hmm. which is slightly different than Hereto. Right. And then I had to turn to my mother, who. Is Indian, and you have a different cultural dynamic there, um, and speak to her in English, and um, that kind of just rounds out a situation where I had to go full on with all of my skills. You're like, this is what I've been training for this exact moment, right? <laughs> so we can see these rhinos. That a similar thing happened to me, but with one person. I was catching a cab to the airport in Nakhonsi Thammarat, and as you go. Uh, away from Bangkok and Thailand, the dialect changes a little bit. So Southern yeah. Thai is a lot faster, a little bit harsher. Um, and my Thai was just not amazing because I didn't live there that long. But I really desperately tried to communicate with this taxi driver in Thai. Then he tried speaking to me in English, and then suddenly he was like, "Your name is Apeksha." I said yes, and he's like, he suddenly starts speaking to me in Hindi, <laughs> and I. 
And this is, I mean, it's not a, this is not a place, if you see, like, a white person walking around, you're like, are you lost? How did you get here? Right. Like, it was just really, really obscure, let alone an Indian person. No Indian food available in this town. Right. Um, and, I, and I was like, how on earth are you speaking to me in Hindi? He's like, oh, you know, when I was young, I went to Gujarat and went to college, and then I came back. Just and I'm casually. like, that's wildly convenient for me, because now I can easily get to the airport. <laughs> right. um, and I'm like... It took us a few steps to get there, but this is like the most random connection. And there were so many random people who spoke Hindi in the south of Thailand. That was such a godsend for me because when you really yes. need to get home, um, it just helps to have someone who you can speak absolutely fluently with yes. um, and not be freaking out. <laughs> yes, very true. I remember uh, we were touring around Southern Africa from Namibia and we were lost in the middle of Malawi um, in some, you know, village off the coast of Lake Malawi. We could not find anyone who spoke English. Uh, we could not speak any of the Malawian languages. Oshiretto is not at all similar. As you recall, I said it's more similar to Angola and the Congo, which is directly north. Mm -hmm. Malawi is east, so completely different language group. Other than the word for meat, which apparently is universal. <laughs> so we were like utterly lost. We didn't know even where to get, like start hitchhiking. But well, there was a Chinese-owned shop in the village because there's loads of Chinese-owned shops in various villages throughout Southern Africa. And um, so I just went in there and asked for directions. And it was very casual, but the look on the guy's face, because it's just him, not none of his family is there. <laughs> I swear he thought I was like part of the Communist Party trying to hunt him down or something. He was petrified that someone was speaking Mandarin to him. But we got directions, got out of there, and it's like like what you're saying about how so many people speak Hindi, and that's it's a, more of a global language than you would think. Um, not necessarily in terms of the different people who speak it, but in the ways that you can use it, right? Um, just like Mandarin, you can find someone who speaks Mandarin in almost any place. Um, so if you're really lost, you know, even in the middle of South America, if you don't speak any Spanish, I guarantee you you'll find someone who speaks Mandarin and you can get directions. Absolutely. All right, Bryce, so we are nearing the end of our time. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming or I guess like logging on because we're not physically in the same <laughs> space, but you know, whatever the lingo is for online meetings um, and for sharing all your experiences. They were so interesting. A lot of things I haven't heard about before. So I feel like I just opened my mind up a little bit and Learned a little bit about myself, dare I say, in the process. Um, so do you have anything you want to say to our listeners before we sign off today? Yeah, I guess my last thing, going back to the initial analogy of a pocket knife, you know, make sure to keep your tools in your pocket knife sharp. Make sure to add as many tools as you can because you never know when you're going to use them. And by that, I mean go forth and travel and experience different things. It's the best thing that you can do for yourself and the world. Phenomenal. Thank you so much, Bryce. Maybe we'll have you back on later in the, I don't know, tenure of this. <laughs> Let's see how long the podcast goes. We'll figure it out. Sounds good. I'm happy to be your returning alumni. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>